Well, I'm glad to be here with you and to worship with you today and to witness, lay eyes on this great church that has played such an inspirational role in uh, my story and the story of our church. And um, I know you're grateful to be a part of it and to see how God is using it to make impact on this city. My wife was actually supposed to make this trip. She sends her regards, but when we were planning to come here, my youngest son is playing AAU basketball, and we're, we're honest parents, and so we didn't expect the team to be this good. <laughs> and they kept winning, and we were like, wow. Wow, that's awesome. And so they're actually playing in AAU championships in Orlando, Florida right now. And um, so she texts me earlier and let me know they won today. They're playing in a championship tomorrow. So, man, we're excited about that. And um, yeah, surprised and excited. It's all good. <laughs> all right, so there's something I want to share. I want to read a brief portion of a story found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 14. And I'm going to read two verses in beginning at verse 28, Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to read two verses beginning at verse 28. So it's the middle of a conversation, an apprentice, a mentee, a disciple of Jesus named Peter is having with Jesus, and this is what he says. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. I want to tag a title to this text, and I want to talk from this subject in our time together. I am number 12. I am number 12. I've been wrestling with this concept I've affectionately entitled a theology of achievement. And it simply rests on the revelation that God wants us to not only be good stewards of our time and our treasure, but God also wants us to be good stewards of our talent. In other words, it's God's intention that we make full use of the gifts, the talents, and the acquired skill that he's graciously given to each and every one of us. Not to do so is to subliminally say to God, number one, you made a bad investment. Number two, you could have taken some of what you've given me and given it to someone else who would have done more with it. I am arguing, family, that the graveyard is not just filled with tombs, but the graveyard is filled with unfulfilled potential. Potential is capacity that God gives you and me that is necessary for our purpose. Our purpose on this planet is not an accident. It is not a cosmic coincidence. Your parents may have been surprised by your arrival, but God was not. 
the scriptures teach <laughs> that you've been strategically and intentionally crafted by God. You have been wired for your work. You've been built by design. You and I have purpose. And purpose is always an answer to a problem. When the light bulb was created, it answered a darkness problem. When medicine is created, it answers sickness problems. When food it was created, <laughs> it answers a hunger problem. When transportation was created, it answered transportation problems because purpose solves problems. So when we don't reach our potential, it means we don't accomplish our purpose. And when we don't accomplish our purpose, we leave some problems in the earth unsolved. Am I making sense here? Yes. And whenever an individual makes a decision to live beneath their potential, no matter what flowery language they use, no matter what terminology they employ, there is only one word that accurately depicts and describes what we're doing when we live beneath our potential, and that word is settling. It is the equivalent of putting a comma, a period where God wants a comma. It is the equivalent of dictating your own destiny. It is the equivalent of saying what is good enough for you is good enough for God. And family, when we do this, it robs not only the world of our external contribution, but it robs us of our internal fulfillment. Maslow says, if you plan on being anything less than you are capable of being, you are planning on being unhappy all the days of your life. I've, I begin to ask myself, what is it then that, besides God's grace, that separates those who maximize their potential from those who don't. Those who are fully fruitful from those who aren't. Those who live ordinary lives from those who live extraordinary lives. And the conclusion that I come to is the embracing of a principle that I see here in this passage in Matthew. It is a principle I affectionately entitle the principle of exception. What does that mean, Pastor Darius? The principle of exception simply suggests what happens with them does not dictate and determine what happens with me. Did you hear what I just said? What happens with them does not dictate and determine what happens with me. This is not a declaration of superiority. It is a declaration of distinction. When we say this, we aren't saying we are better than others. We're saying we're different from others. We're saying that previous patterns with other people are not accurate indicators of what can happen with me. 
It means that you can't look at everybody else my age and tell me what I can do at my age. It means that you can't look at everyone else my gender and tell me what I can do at my gender. It means that you can't look at everyone who came from my neighborhood and tell me what I can do coming from my neighborhood because God is the God of exceptions. Am I making sense? Yes. When we say this, we are saying that the exception is not in the experience. The exception is in the outcome. We may go through some of the same things everyone else goes through, but we don't have to come out of those things the same way everyone else comes out. They may not have recovered but you can. They may not have bounced back, but you can. They may not have been able to do it, but you can. Because what happened with them does not dictate and determine what can happen with me. God is the God of exceptions, and we can be people of exceptions. You see, the scriptures are inundated with examples of this truth. People don't go in dens with lions and come out in one piece. But with Daniel, God made an exception. People are not thrown into man-sized fiery furnaces and come out of the fiery furnace, not even smelling like smoke. But God made an exception with the Hebrew boys to teach you and me that he can not only bring us out of hot situations, but he can bring us out and we not even smell like what we've been through. Teenagers don't defeat giants trained in military warfare with a rock. But with David... God made an exception. People feed birds. Birds don't feed people. But with Elijah, God made an exception to teach you and me that he will temporarily change the nature of a thing and make a selfish thing a generous thing to get to you what he needs to get to you when he needs to get, get it to you. I don't know who this is for today, but I want you to know God can change some people's nature and he can make takers become givers. He can make haters become helpers. Because God is the God of exception. And you and I can be people of exception. How many times do we, make, do we come to conclusions about what is possible for us based on what happened with someone else? It's interesting here because I believe there's a word that can be used to describe people that embrace this principle of exception. I didn't say understand this principle of exception because it's possible to understand something cognitively and not embrace it personally. 
It's possible to believe something is true and not believe it's true for you. It's possible to believe God can use anyone but not believe God can use you. But there's a word that the Bible, I believe, depicts. There's a word John Ortberg actually describes that I think characterizes people who embrace this principle of exception, and this word is water walkers. The Bible is filled with examples of individuals who do walking. I mean, Enoch walked with God, Abraham walked to Mount Moriah, Moses walked through the Red Sea, Joshua walked around the walls of Jericho, the disciples walked on Emmaus Road, Jesus walked the Via Della Rosa, but none of this walking compares with the walking we just read about in Matthew because all of this walking was done on land. But the walking we just read about in the book of Matthew was not done on land. That walking was done on water. In the book of Matthew, you see somebody walking on what other people drown in. You see somebody on top of what is on top of what is normally on top of other people. You see somebody stepping on what some people swim in. You see water walking here. We, we read the last portion of this story in the latter part of Matthew chapter number 14, but the story really picks up begins in verse number 22. The Bible records Jesus performing this miracle with two fish and five loaves of bread. And it says immediately after that miracle, Jesus tells his disciples to get in a boat and they go to, a, to the other side of the lake while he goes to a place to pray. Now, there's a lesson in this for those who are leaders, those who have influence, those who have people who have preferences on how you ought to spend your time. There's a lesson in this because I'm assuming the disciples would have preferred that Jesus get in the boat with them. But Jesus models for us that if we're going to accomplish our purpose, and reach our potential. We must live a life where we distinguish between people's preferences and their needs. He made a decision he would not have his time imprisoned by the preferences of other people. And so he gets, puts them on a boat, he goes somewhere to pray, and the Bible says, a period of hours passed, and then the disciples who are on that boat, his apprentices, his mentees, they run into a storm. They run into a storm, and Jesus is not on the boat with them. Have you ever ran into a storm and felt like Jesus wasn't on the boat with you? Have you ever ran into something and felt like, God, where are you now? You were with me before I got to shore. I was excited about where you were sending me. I was tweeting about the great things you were getting ready to do in my life. 
I was hashtagging blessed. <laughs> I, I, I was excited about all you were getting ready to do. I was telling people the things that you were getting ready to do. And now that I left the shore, now that I'm out here, I want to know where are you? Because I was convinced you told me to do this before I did it. Now that I'm actually doing it and I'm running into a storm, I'm beginning to wonder if you said what I thought you said before I left the shore. I just want to find the honest section at Oasis. Say, God, I felt really good about this until I got in the middle of this. Now I'm like, oh, no. You were serious, serious, Jesus. Jesus allows the disciples to deal with what I call the, the, watch this, the perception of his absence. He wasn't absent. It just, he wasn't absent. It just looked like he was absent. Because we assume if God is not active, that means he's not present. Did you hear what I just said? We assume, God, if you are present, you're going to be doing something. But I want to tell you, just because God is not active doesn't mean God's not present. I want to tell you that the actions of God are intentional. They are never an end unto themselves. They are always a means to an end. So whenever he does something, he does it on purpose because he's intentional. And whenever he does nothing, he does nothing on purpose because he's intentional. So when he's doing something, he's doing something. And when he's doing nothing, he's doing something because he's doing nothing intentionally. So we should praise God when he's doing something. And we should also praise God when he's doing nothing because God is intentional. So he puts these disciples on the ship intentionally. And they're like, where are you, Jesus? And Jesus is like, I'm going to be where I sent you. I'm going to show back up at the point of obedience. You're like, God, where are you? God's like, I'm where you're supposed to be. And when you get... When you get to where you're supposed to be, I'll show back up again. But I have to use, God has to use his absence as motivation to get us to move. Because sometimes we won't move when everything gets comfortable. And we won't move when God feels close. And we won't move when everything seems cool, calm, and collected. But when God withdraws some things, then it becomes motivation for us to bust the move. And when you bust the move, God's going to meet you where you're supposed to be. So he goes off to pray. And the disciples, we don't know if they were rowing. There was probably a combination of both. They were probably doing some rowing and maybe some sailing. Who knows? 
It's primarily, probably during those days, probably rowing. For hours, they're rowing. He's stagnant in one place, praying. For hours, they're moving, and he's still. For hours, they're gaining ground. He's probably sitting on the ground. Have you ever felt like people were rowing and you were sitting? Have you ever felt like people have a head start on you? Have you ever looked at someone your same age and felt like they were so much further down the line than you were? Have you ever felt like you were behind schedule? Have you ever felt like you've wasted some seasons? Have you ever felt like things should be different than they are right now? It's interesting because even though they get a head start that amounts to hours, the Bible says right before dawn, Jesus comes walking to them on the lake. Now, if they had to roll, that means they had to sweat. If they had to roll, that means they had to strain. If they had to roll, that means they had to exert energy. And here comes Jesus getting to the same place at the same time with no sweat. They're sweating. He's stepping. They're straining. He's just chilling, digging the scene with the Jesus lean. Whoop, whoop. He's just, he's just stepping because sometimes we feel like if people start earlier, they're going to get there sooner. But God is the God that knows how to get you there another way. They might row their way there, but God knows how to get you there a different way and in a way that makes up for lost time. We, we, we could argue, we could argue that Jesus, Jesus' time in prayer was equivalent to spiritual preparation. <laughs> right? We, 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 we could argue that. We could argue that his time of prayer was equivalent to preparation. It, that God, we could argue that God the Father delayed his start. It's like, like God saying, no, I'm not, I'm not going to let you go yet. I'm going to supernaturally sabotage your start. Because there are some things I want to do in you before I do something for you. And you're upset that you're behind schedule now. But when I get you to where I'm taking you, you're going to be glad I made you wait. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because, because I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but Jesus walks on the water and he never sinks. Peter walks on the water for a while and then he sinks. What's the difference? Peter tried to do what Jesus did in public without doing what Jesus did in private. Peter, listen there. Peter, Peter got there first but he didn't stay. Jesus got there last, but he stayed because God 
took more time with him to prepare him. And I really believe this is for somebody. I want you to receive this as God's love letter for you. Maybe God is taking a little longer with you because he's putting something in you that needs to be in you so that when you get there, you're going to stay. Is when you get there, you're going to stay. Let, let me explain this. The scriptures teach to whomsoever much is given, much is required, right? This is what I call it. In other words, there's a backside to every blessing. And most of the time, when we want something, we want the front side. And we may be ready for the front side, but there's also a back side. And there are times where we're frustrated with God's timing in our life because we feel like, God, I'm ready for this. I've got the skill. I've got the background. I've got, I've got the ability. I've got the connections. God, what's up with the holdup? What's up? And God's like, yeah, you are ready for the front side. That's the side you can see. Says, but you aren't ready for the backside. That's the side you can't see. See, you don't get promotion without pressure. Promotion is the front side. Pressure is the backside. You don't get more notoriety without more criticism. Notoriety is the front side. Criticism is the backside. So the question isn't, am I ready for the notoriety? The question is, is my heart healthy enough to handle the criticism? Am I making sense? Okay. <laughs> so here's, here's the point. Let me wrap up because y'all tired of me already. So here it is. <laughs> so, so here it is. The Bible says Jesus comes walking on the water and they're experiencing a storm of sorts. So the disciples, they get really mystical here. And, and they say, it's a ghost. Now based on their faith background, they probably didn't even believe in ghosts. But some trouble will make you see things you didn't, <laughs> right? Make you believe in things you didn't believe in before, right? Um, so here it is. They say, is it a ghost? And Jesus says, it's not a ghost, it's me. Here's my question. If they've been learning from Jesus, spending time with Jesus for three years, how is it that they don't recognize him when they see him? Maybe it's because God doesn't always look like God in a storm. They called Jesus a ghost because they labeled it prematurely. After a while, they saw, oh, this not a ghost, that's Jesus. See, when you're in a, in a storm, it's some things you're calling one thing, and you're going to get to another season in life, and you're going to call that God. Am I making sense? Like, so you might, be calling, you might be calling it rejection today. Next month, you might look back at that and say, oh, that was God. Yeah. You might be calling that, 
a layoff today. But later you'll look at that and say, that was God. Let me see. I think I'm at the right service with this one. You may be calling it a breakup today. But two years from now, you might look at back at that and say, that was God. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Thank God that he didn't let you stay with who you were with because you wouldn't have met who you met or you wouldn't meet who you getting ready to meet. So Peter says, okay, God, Jesus, if it's you, if it's you, tell me to come on the water too. I love it because I don't really think Peter was just trying to walk on water. I think Peter was trying to get to Jesus. I think Peter's thinking, I'd rather be with you on the sea than in the ship with the rest of these people. He's like, Jesus, where are we going? Where are we going? <laughs> so this is what's interesting. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. I love it because he shows us how to be a person of achievement without being trapped by ambition. Wow. He didn't just jump out of the boat himself. He asked Jesus for permission. You see that? You see the difference? You just say, oh, I'm about to start this on my own. He says, no, I'm going to ask you for permission. I'm not going to be led by my ambition. And Jesus responded with one word. The word Jesus responded with is the word come. And the Bible says Peter got down out of the boat, walked on water, and came toward Jesus. And I want to tell you, if you're going to reach your potential, if I'm going to reach my potential, there will be seasons where we're going to have to go on a come. There are going to be seasons where come has to be enough. See, I'm honest enough in this season of my life to admit come wouldn't have been enough for me. I'd be like, come where? Oh, no, that's water, water, Jesus. <laughs> that's water, water. No, no. Some of you are wired that way. Come on, tell the truth. You're wired that way. You're like, okay, where we're going, when we're going. I need details. What's okay? Are you gonna suspend gravity? I need to know. How are we doing this? Come had to be enough. It means that it's you're gonna. There're gonna be some decisions that aren't black and white. It's easy when you're choosing between good and bad. It's hard when you're choosing between great and great. Right? And some of you in this room, you're extraordinarily gifted. And every blessing can be a burden if it's not managed properly. Because some of the most gifted people are some of the most unproductive because you have so many options. 
So when you're gifted, when you're, when you're gifted the way many of you are gifted, you got to choose between multiple paths that you could take and all of which could be paths where you could see fruitfulness. See, it's different when you can only do one thing. But when you can do multiple things, that can be really confusing. Jesus said, come. And come was enough. Peter stepped out of that boat. And this is, this, this is what I want to tell you. This is the second time I preach this message today. I never get to the points. <laughs> I don't, here it is. When, when, when Peter got out of that boat, he left 11 other people in it. This is, this is tough. Because Peter, I think he models something that we talk about in culture and in church. I'm not quite sure we practice it though. I think Peter models Romans 12 too for us. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul encourages the believers at Rome, reject conformity, embrace your uniqueness. Reject the pressure to conform and operate in your uniqueness because God only blesses the authentic self. The only person he'll help you be is you. So when Peter stepped out of that boat, it was a step of distinction. It was his way of finally accepting him. His way of being okay with him. His way of saying, I am not number seven. I'm not number nine. I'm not number 10. I'm not number 11. All 11 of y'all stay in that boat. I'm not built for the boat. I'm number 12. Are there any number 12s in this house today? I'm done, but I've got a question to ask, and the question is, what do you think kept those other 11 in that boat? There's so many people that aren't built for the boat, but they won't step into the sea. Because they need the comfort that comes with conformity. There's some comfort that comes when you conform, right? When you don't rock the boat when you do it the way it's always been done. There's some comfort that comes with that because you don't have to deal with the criticism of people whispering when you step out. Why he getting out of the boat? <laughs> there, there Peter going. There every time's up, there's Peter. I spent a, I don't know, a whole, I think about six weeks in the spring teaching on some of this at our churches. Because you can't get out of that boat if you're suffering with approval addiction. The opinions of the 11 could have imprisoned him. And how many times are people supposed to step, but they don't step? 
because they're addicted to the approval of the 11. But you aren't built for the boat. So it's gonna sound weird coming from a religious leader, but I came for the weird today. I believe this is God's word for you. It is an affirmation that encourages you to embrace your uniqueness. To be unapologetically who God has wired you to be. And if you're willing to do that, you'll be able to walk on top of things other people sink in and you'll be able to go places other people can't go and you'll be able to do things other people cannot do. If you will use your rock instead of Saul's armor, you will knock Goliath down. If you will do it the way God has wired you to do it, we reject conformity. We accept our uniqueness because I am number 12. I am number 12. I am number 12. Father, I pray today, according to Acts 4, may you give us boldness and courage to be us. I pray for every person that feels weird, feels out of place, feels abnormal. Pray today that you would affirm their uniqueness, their identity. And may they walk in comfort, in boldness, in security, knowing they are exactly who you have called them to be. Raise up an army, I pray, of number 12s. And may it be said of us, as it was said of the early church, these are they that have turned the world upside down. In Jesus' name.